This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Hope you had a great weekend. We're back in action now. I'm sure you probably didn't take any moments off. 50 days left. 50 days in for the new election day, November 3rd. And I hope we get a, a verdict on that day, But um, and I am hopeful for that. Uh, Don Yeager at the bottom of the hour. Talk about Colin Kaepernick coming out and saying the NFL, all their social justice uh, procedures and programs are propaganda. Well, there's a guy who's thankful for being apologized to, makes millions of dollars not to play football. But he's bitter that he says he was blackballed when he was a backup quarterback in the 49ers. Uh, and he still doesn't have a job. He, should he have had a job? Yeah. But people always take into what type of asset you are to the locker room. More on that later. So uh, we have a lot to discuss. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. I gave you a lot of room to call. A lot of people have a lot to say, especially as we begin the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The two deputies were doing their job, minding their own business, and watching out for the safety of the people on the train and seeing somebody just walk up and just start shooting on them. Uh, there you go. Uh, that was Sheriff Alex Villanueva talking about the war on cops. It hits a new low. Two assassinated assassination attempts in Los Angeles. And they blocked the ambulances trying to save their lives, chanting, hope they die. Let them die. This has to be a turning point. The war on cops has to end with this blue, with the blue winning. Number two. Obviously, the internal polls that we're seeing, it shows momentum on our side. Uh, we're seeing the president leading or tied in these battleground states. Mercedes Schlapp talking about what's happening with uh, the Cook Report moving two states, Nevada and Florida, to toss up. 50 days to go, the state of the race. The president is barnstorming the country while the Biden team is virtually campaigning. I'm not kidding. They're not going anywhere. Number one. I say the president is the wrong man for the job. But you're known as the reporter who doesn't put his thumb on the scale. And yet, at the end of this book, you do just that. It's a conclusion based on evidence. Uh, that's called a thumb on the scale. Woodward's 18 conversations with Trump pleads to him uh, to believe the president misplaced the coronavirus. That's what he believes. But for a medical professional on the inside, that is just not true. I'll tell you what else Woodward said, what he concluded, and what you'll surely be a Woodward week. You'll be constantly being besieged by different things in that book. We'll also bring you the state of the fight to kill COVID. By the way, the number of cases down 18% nationwide, number of deaths down 19%. It's trending in the right direction. Uh, let's talk about the Woodward book and what it means. First off, on the coronavirus, uh, Bob Woodward selling his book on this point. Cut one. 
It might disappoint some of your fans that you reach an editorial conclusion at the end of this book, something that reporters are not supposed to do. Yes. I say the president is the wrong man for the job. But you're known as the reporter who doesn't put his thumb on the scale. And yet, at the end of this book, you do just that. It's a conclusion based on evidence, overwhelming evidence that he could not rise to the occasion with the virus and tell the truth. And one of the things that President Trump told me in the presidency, there's always dynamite behind the door. The real dynamite, it's President Trump. Right. He is the dynamite. Look, Bob Woodward's talked to every president. He rips every one of them. He finds vulnerabilities. He has unnamed sources. People deny it at the, the cusp of it is 18 interviews with the president. But there are things around the president in that book that got to make the president look bad that can't be verified. So here's President Trump. Here's the big conversation everybody's talking about. Uh, Donald Trump uh, talking to Bob Woodward February 7th. Cut to. It's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more right. deadly. This is 5 per, you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. Okay. And they said, well, why didn't you have Bob Woodward? This is a big deal because publicly the president was playing it down. He does not deny he played it down because he want to panic everyone. But what he's saying is behind closed doors, his people are moving 100 miles an hour to try to solve this problem, find out what's coming, where it's coming, and how to test for it. And they've been telling him one thing, but the CDC failed miserably, and China was never transparent. So you could blame the president, I guess, for not forcing his way in, but he was told by President Xi, who he just signed a trade deal, that it was under control and it wasn't coming here, and it was already here. So Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who ran the FDA and is friendly with the administration, but does not pull punches on mistakes he thinks they made, was asked this very thing. Now, be patient on Face the Nation. I know you didn't watch. I did for you. Here's Dr. Scott, Lee, Dr. Scott Gottlieb with Margaret Brennan, cut eight. For any president, their very first responsibility is to protect the American public. From your point of view, do you think the critical failing here was one of public messaging, or was it operational? Well, look, the public messaging wasn't clear and consistent in the outset and could have been better at all levels of government. Um, I think if you look back uh, in February, and I think when history looks back, the biggest failing over that month was that we were, we were situationally blind. We had no idea where this virus was and wasn't spreading. And so when it came time to have to shut down cities, rather than focus on the cities that were truly epidemic like New York City, we went for a simultaneous shutdown order across the whole country when that w was unnecessary now in retrospect because there were a lot of cities where the virus wasn't spreading at that time and we could have focused okay. our mitigation. But we had no diagnostic tests in the field to screen people. Okay. The CDC said they had it. They didn't. They were testing for the flu. It wasn't the flu. Flu-like. Now, do you think for a second the president wanted to shut the country down? Does his biggest enemy, Michael Moore, do you think Michael Moore believes that the president wanted to shut the country down? Absolutely not. Nobody. So he's saying they made a mistake recommending to the president, Dr. Burke specifically, to shut the country down. 
right? We still have not recovered. And these cities use this as an opportunity to keep the country shut down, to make the economy look terrible and make Joe Biden president. Gottlieb goes on. Cut nine. CDC officials were relying on and telling the coronavirus task force was that there was no spread of coronavirus in the United States in February. They were telling them that um, because they were looking at what we call the influenza-like illness surveillance network, basically a surveillance network of who's presenting to hospitals with flu-like symptoms. And they said that they're seeing no spike in people presenting with respiratory symptoms. Therefore, coronavirus must not be spreading. And they were adamant about that. I was talking to White House officials over this time period. They were adamant about that. And I suspect the president was being told as well that this virus wasn't spreading in the United States. And that may have impacted what he did and didn't say and his willingness to, you know, as he said, talk it down a little bit because he was of the perception that this was not spreading here in the United States. That really was the tragic mistake. Not just that we didn't have the information but we were so confident in drawing conclusions off of what proved to be faulty information and incomplete information. I would take Dr. Scott Gottlieb over Bob Woodward any day. Who's a better scientist? Who's a better doctor? Scott Gottlieb. Who's been through it? Who hasn't? Scott Gottlieb. Who knows presidents? Bob Woodward. President never claimed to be a scientist. The pandemic comes ashore. We haven't seen anything like it since 1918. And there are people who are alarmist, and there's other people on the other side that aren't. And in the end, Gottlieb says maybe they shouldn't have shut the country down at all, just in problematic areas. And his scientists were telling him it's not here. Cut nine. Are you saying he was failed by health officials? Are you letting him off the hook? Look, I think in this respect, the White House leadership was failed by health officials. Um, We did not have a diagnostic in the field. Uh, So we couldn't screen for it. We should have. We should have started working on that in January. And we over-relied on a surveillance system that was built for flu and not for coronavirus without recognizing that it wasn't going to be as sensitive at detecting coronavirus spread as it was for flu because the two viruses spread very differently. Um, Those were two critical failings. Now, you could say, well, the president put those people in place. He's responsible. You know, you can make second-order arguments around that. But I think ultimately the White House did not have the information they need to make decisions. I just thought this told the story, and I know you didn't watch Face the Nation yesterday. And if you look at other Scott Gottlieb clips, just go online, you'll see he doesn't kiss up to the president. If he doesn't, you know, I'm sure they like each other, and he, a lot of his friends are still there. But he is surprising Margaret Brennan. Can't believe it. Basically, you've given the president a pass. He's like, kind of. You depend on your scientists. He's guilty of maybe not hiding from the right scientists. So when Bob Woodward, the president, knew, I'm playing it down, yeah, he knew to what degree. As much as a 74-year-old businessman can know, asking scientists what to do, I don't need to tell you that the Surgeon General is telling us not to wear a mask. I don't need to tell you that on February 23rd, Dr. Fauci says it's not going to affect our lives. And if they're saying that, what do you think the president's saying? I think I'm just going to shut down the country for the first time ever they didn't even shut it down in 1918 on a whim. You think you get killed for that? Absolutely. Should he? Yeah. Because we're still not out of this. And where the unemployment's 8.4%, it's probably uh, going to get higher again because Congress isn't doing anything. And we've won trillions in debt just to keep this number somewhat, I guess, palatable. Here's Dr. Anthony Fauci, though who never misses a chance on an interview to break some news and makes the president look bad. Cut for it. There were times when I was out there telling the American public how difficult this is, how we're having a really serious problem. 
you know, and the president was saying it's something that's going to disappear, which obviously is not the case. So, yes, when you downplay something that is really a threat, that's not a good thing. What you do is you work hard behind the scenes to test as many people as possible. You don't get them to panic. And when you said you thought we turned the corner and you can't believe the way the country responded, and you told us not to wear masks, and then you told us to wear uh, something, maybe, it only helps you. Then you tell me it helps others. Whether you're sick or not, that helps. If you're not sick, there's no reason to do it. So you're all over the map. At least acknowledge that even though you've been doing this for 70 years, you had no idea whether to tell the American people to wear a mask. And since that time, you guys have learned stuff. But for in terms of American behavior, social distance, wash your hands, stay away, wear a mask. Nothing has changed since May. So in terms of the coronavirus, as I mentioned, the numbers are going down. Uh, In Israel, they're in the middle of a second lockdown. In Europe, there's a bit of a second surge. We fear that, but there's a lot of things going on right now in our country that we should be happy about. 62% they'll worry that we're rushing the vaccine. I am not one of those 62. I know there's all protocols. And the economic, the financial and political the price that you pay for rushing a vaccine, the president won't even the president will even lose his base if he gives us a bad, bad vaccine. The majority of blacks and Latinos say they are uh, facing serious financial strains in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, and Houston. A third of small businesses have cut wages or payrolls and expect to do both next month. If something doesn't change, something doesn't come along. When we come back, we'll talk about the polls, some trends, what the president did last night in Nevada, gone indoors. Many didn't wear masks for a rally, first one since Tulsa. A lot of people evidently got sick after Tulsa. The president was stopped from going on outdoor venues and said, screw it. I'm in Nevada. I'm going to do an event. And people came out of the woodwork to see him in Henderson. And a lot of people are focusing on that. I'm looking at the crowd and what he said. He goes out to see the damage the forest fires are doing to Oregon and California today. And then he goes over to Arizona. Busy hour. I want to hear from you. one 408 This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. 
In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. As you probably saw on some of the shows this morning, uh, they're very disturbed by the poll numbers because we're very high and leading with Latinos. And that's a really tremendous thing. I'm very honored by it. And uh, the president of the United States is feeling that uh, the result of that by being neck and neck in Florida might be uh, in a dead heat, as well as now a contender in Nevada. The Cook Political Report says it's now it went from leaning left to now too close to call what they call uh, just basically a toss up. So that's pretty significant. So. Uh, here we are, a time in which early voting has really begun in some states. Nine of ten people say they have already made up their minds. Are you one of them? Uh, in Arizona, the president's got to make up ground. It's got to be with Hispanics more than likely. Uh, 47-44 is trailing by about three. Uh, that is in the CBS poll. In Minnesota, I can't believe this. There's now nine-point advantage for Joe Biden in Minnesota. The president making such gains, especially with law enforcement and a series of mayors who are Democrats who are endorsing the president of the United States. Handling of the virus. Joe Biden still with a dominant lead. The Woodward book won't help that, right or wrong. And uh, uh, 50 to 37. And uh, handling the economy, Trump with a slight lead. The Wall Street Journal, though, says 48 percent of voters said Trump was the candidate better suited to handle the economy. But only of the 48 percent, only 41 percent would say they're still going to vote for him. So it shows you the coronavirus takes such a role now. It used to be the war or something else or a scandal or the Wall Street uh, collapse. It's not the case. Uh, 5146, Biden's up on the Fox News poll. This is going to be key. And if the president's got to change his verbiage a little bit. He's got to explain to people, especially seniors, if you don't feel comfortable going to the polls, requesting a ballot is great. Just when you get flooded with ballots and flood a state like Colorado and Nevada, I think three or five states overall, that's the problem. But people are getting mixed messages. 71% of mail-in voters are going to vote for Biden. Only 39% for Trump. Only 26% of Joe Biden's voters are going to go in person. 58% of Trump's voters will. Now, in Colorado, they decide to flood that state. Everybody gets a ballot. So they sued. The Trump, uh, the Trump organization sued. Not organization. Campaign sued. And the judge has ruled. Uh, the post office says, we're not going to do that. We're not going to deliver all these ballots. And the judge's rules they have to for now. They say they stay in the order. Uh, the household, they said that they, you now will be able to mail out everybody in Colorado a ballot, whether it was requested or not. The Cook Political Report, as I mentioned, from Florida moved from lean Democrat to toss-up, no question. And in Nevada, likely Democrat to lean Democrat. Trump advisors view Florida in particular as a must-win. Everybody knows that. But if you can pull off Nevada, that gives you some room maybe to lose another state that you had last time, but you didn't win last time. That's going to be key. Why is the president gaining with Latinos? Why? Look what he did in Venezuela, cracking down on that, that government that is 
uh, corruptly, as, as corrupt as the day is long, has put socialist principles into their free market country, has taken their oil and gas and thrown it in the street, giving it away to Iran, and just really uh, ramrodded over everyone's lives. The president's come out and trying to strangle that government and put a new one in. Next, over in Cuba, the president of the United States says, yeah, that whole uh, reapproachment with Cuba, I'm not for that. If you're an American of Cuban descent, you're not happy about it. You're happy that the president's taking a strong stand on that. So that's going to be key. Doug Schoen writes, who's a Democrat, Hispanic voters comprise a significant portion of the eligible population for swing states like Florida and Arizona. As a block, the votes reliably blue when they do turn out, notably Hispanics of Cuban descent. Democrats have to turn them out in large numbers in order to be successful. Where are Democrats making up for? They're making it up with college-educated women. And they're seeing, especially seniors, uh, they're seeing that the president, they believe, is not taking care of the seniors, who so many of which have lost their lives, up to 191,000. Most are over 70 years old with underlying conditions. The president's got to change that because he had that vote last time. He should get it now. one 408 We'll be back in just a moment. Monday edition, Brian Kilmeade Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The consistent thing that we've been seeing for a long time right now is that wherever you are, there's significant erosion for Donald Trump relative to 2016 in his support among white voters. The Trump campaign has been able to find a bit of an offset to that erosion. In in Florida, they found a big offset to that erosion, and that is the support among Cuban-American voters. That's our poll last week that showed among Hispanic voters statewide in Florida, and a big part of that is the Cuban-American vote that Trump leads uh, by four points uh, in Florida, statewide among Hispanic voters. So that was Steve Kornacki at another channel talking about what the president's looking at, trying to replicate 2016. Uh, I think that in Latinos, I think it's a big pickup. I think he's got a chance to get more African-American votes. Let's see if he can keep it somewhat racial justice oriented. Say there is a problem with race in our country. There is a way to get things more equal, and we should work towards that, but just don't take it as a negative towards police, we got to stop the assassination attempts that are happening in Los Angeles and Chicago, and you also point out the success they've had with Operation Legend in Detroit, as well as Chicago. So where are we at right now? The president of the United States is creating some controversy. Why? Because he's in Nevada. He's got to win Nevada. It's now a toss-up, or they say leans left instead of like firmly left. So he's got a chance of winning there. So what does he do? He wants to go speak there. That's what he does best. But he has uh, a bunch of outdoor events planned, and they keep on telling him he can't do it. He's got a Democratic governor there saying it's not safe. You can only have 50 people. So they end up going indoors. And that is controversial because a lot of those people, as well as going indoors with a big crowd, which we're not allowed to do because it's, it's going to change the world because of the virus, he went indoors, and people are saying people are going to die because of that. So here's a quote from the governor. Uh, President Trump is making reckless and selfish acts that are putting countless lives in danger. He came into our state and blatantly disregarded the emergency directives that we had. He goes on. So what does Trump do? Trump's uh, Tim Murtaugh says this. If you can join tens of thousands of people protesting in the streets, gambling in casino, or burn down small businesses and riots, you can gather peacefully under the First Amendment to hear from the president of the United States. I 100 percent agree. 
You got to make your decision on the masks. I would keep it distance. But if I'm the president, I just say, hey, guys, you got to wear a mask. Anyone behind him was supposed to wear a mask. A lot of them were using it as chin straps. Not good. But they were wearing a mask. People in front of them weren't. And, but they know the risks at this point. And let's see. Let's track this. And let's see what goes on. If these people, if Dr. Fauci and others were saying, I'm really upset about these Poland riots. I'm upset about what they're doing with cops and putting their lives at risk. I'd have a lot more sympathy. Meanwhile, uh, talks about meltdowns. Here's Peter Navarro. He was on over the weekend on State of the Union with Jake Tapper. And Peter is a pit bull. Cut 12. On February 7th, he knew that it was in the air, that it was five yeah, times deadlier than the flu. This, no, five times that, deadly, that's he on the tape. expressed that to Woodward, but at the same time... Two weeks getting, later, he's, he's saying getting, that the he, flu is deadlier than the coronavirus. Jake, Why just, wasn't he honest? You just don't want to listen, Jake. You just I don't want you to answer listen. the question. You, I am answering your question. You just don't like the answer. The answer is, in February, all the way through the middle of March, when the World Health Organization finally said there was a pandemic... And China was hiding the information. Finally, that's when we knew that there was a pandemic. And you know what, Jake? We were at that point prepared for the worst. In February, we were moving mountains on PPE, therapeutics, testings, and vaccines so that in the time that we needed those things, we got those things. And and it's a miracle what we've been doing on vaccine development. We have a possibility of getting a vaccine by the end of the year. And I put that right in a memo on February 9th under the advice of the president in terms of, of getting on this situation because yeah. it might be serious. You can't have it both ways, Jake. You, you simply I'm can't. I'm not trying to have it both in ways. In February, I'm... nobody knew. No, nobody knew. Not the president. president he's not February you, 7th. not Nancy Pelosi, not Bill de Blasio. He knew whether it was we, deadlier than the flu, expressed... and he was lying to the no. American people two weeks later. Jake. He ends up just cutting them off. So the problem is... The president came out, doesn't know this uh, virus inside and out, and he made some statements. This is going to be dangerous. This is going to be dangerous. But in terms of the science of it, no idea how to stop it. Told by the CDC, we got a test for it. They didn't have it. And that's what was wrong. The other thing that happened over the weekend, and I could not believe I was hearing this. I thought it was an old story, but it's a new one. There was a police car parked in Compton, a man and a woman in it, two cops. Uh, They were deputy sheriffs, and they got shot in the head. Both of them shot in the head just because they were there. Uh, This is because a manhunt. They're trying to take it down, take them down, trying to figure out what happened. But the manhunt, uh, the manhunt has not produced uh, the assailant. But we do have a tape of this entire thing. And unfortunately, there's a mob greeting the ambulance at the hospital. And it's the cover of the New York Post. They are chanting, let them die. I mean, this is something you would expect in Venezuela or Bolivia when there's unrest. You never thought in a million years this would be happening in our country. It took seven hours for Joe Biden to condemn the shooting and his camp, and then in comes Adam Schiff and everybody else. But the war on police continues. ABC News said that one of the deputies, only identified as a 31-year-old mother of a six-year-old boy, was shot in the jaw and arms, uh, and arms but is critical but stable condition. The other deputy, 24-year-old man who was struck by gunfire in the forehead and all, as well as arm and hand, he's described as alert. Neither of their names have been released as of right now. But think about this, this radio call. Uh, think about the, the, the fact is that at any moment these cops can be ambushed. There's no more fear out there. 
Los Angeles Democratic Mayor Eric Garcetti called the actions of the protesters gathered outside the hospital abhorrent. No kidding. But when you vilify the police, when people say they're murderers in Los Angeles when they're not, and you cut $150 million off the budget, and Kamala Harris says that's a great move, how do you expect the country to respond? Here's Sheriff Eric Villanueva, cut 18. The two deputies were doing their job, minding their own business, and watching out for the safety of the people on the train, and seeing somebody just walk up and just start shooting on them. It, it's, uh, it pisses me off. It dismays me at the same time, and I, there's no pretty way to say it. There isn't. Uh, let's go out to Jim in Ohio. Hey, Jim. Morning, Brian. What's on your mind? Um, I was wanting to know, everybody's saying that Trump downplayed this, but didn't the Democrats get the same information as as far as what Trump got? I can't tell you that. I would think that they were. I would think that they were. I cannot say for sure, but I think that they were. And I think Joe Biden, as the likely nominee, was getting fully briefed. His people claimed he was not. Right. My question, though— isn't Pelosi like third in line? Shouldn't she know it? Yes. And yet she was traipsing through San Francisco saying basically don't fall for the president's ban on China, Chinese people. He just doesn't like Chinese people. Kevin, listen on uh, 106.1 over in Florida. Hey, Kevin. Hey, good morning. Uh, hey, I heard you say something about him. the president needs to do a better job with seniors. And I'm a senior, but I'm retired from the Navy. And I got a letter Friday stating that one of my benefits that I did earn, I feel like I earned it, I'm going to have to start paying for it. And I felt like, well, you know, you know, what is this? What's going on with this? So I started researching it. The president did sign it, the Defense Authorization uh, Act of 2017, and so did most of the Republicans. So it started making me wonder all these generals and everybody saying stuff about Trump. I'm wondering if he really does support the military like he says he does most of the time. And is he really going to try to, you know, hurt Social Security later on? I mean, it's it's minimal payment, but, you know, once they start taking something out of your check, yeah, uh, it does nothing but go well. But, but we'll so say I'm, this. I, this is the one thing you'll find. When you cut the payroll tax, that goes to Medicare and it goes to Social Security. But he's trying to get more money into people's hands right now. So that might be, if you might see a commercial on television that says that, but he's saying Congress won't act. I'm trying to give people more money uh, in their hands, so I'll, I'll, hope, hold, I'll push back on the payroll tax, and the general fund will supplement it, take care of it. But that's a good point. Rather than just sit there and say, I'm going to look at an ad and believe the ad, find out for yourself. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Thanks, Kevin. When we come back, Don Yeager joins us. He's an associate editor for Sports Illustrated, eleven-time New York Times bestseller, and host of a uh, a brand new podcast called the Corporate Competitor Podcast. Uh, that story, as well as Colin Kaepernick calling the uh, NFL's work for racial justice propaganda, coming your way. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts.
The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I want to briefly address your know, team statement during the national Live anthem. Just from say the that Fox we will continue to bring attention to the New York City fresh of off the set of Fox and Friends. We will continue to demonstrate our position. Brian Kilmeade. Players and coaches collectively. It was a well thought out process and a stance that supports our belief in making a meaningful change. Uh, that was Frank Reich reading a prepared statement designed to take a knee while everyone else stood during the national anthem in the Colts game against the Jaguars in Jacksonville, which had about, I think, just under 20,000 people. One of the few games yesterday that allowed some people. We know Kansas City will. We know in New Jersey the Jets and Giants are not able to. Some other states will change. It depends. But we know everything's different these days. And what about racial justice? We watched all the scoreboard shows and, if, uh, and from Fox to CBS to NBC. Mention it. Al Michaels conspicuously quiet during it. Don Yeager joins us now, former associate editor for Sports Illustrated, 11-time New York Times bestseller, and host of the brand-new uh, uh, co-op, uh, cooperative cooperative competitor podcast, uh, corporate competitor podcast, I should say. Uh, DonYeager.com is where you find out more. Don, welcome back. I am so grateful to be back with you, my friend. Hey, Don, first off, what do you think about the way the NFL handled everything this weekend? Well, I I think, you know, um, kind of coming out of what the NBA uh, started, right, uh, a few weeks ago when uh, when all those players decided to sit out, sit out those two days of games, I think uh, the NFL realized, oh, crud, like we, you know, we've we've certainly um, we've tried to pay lip service, but boy, we're going to have to do more than that. And what will it look like and how do we do it? Um, I, I don't think anybody believes that they that they did. I mean, heck, Colin Kaepernick doesn't believe they they really did it right. So I, I don't think they satiated anybody on any side of the issue uh, with the way they handled it. And um, so I, I think it's a um, lost opportunity to kind of, in, you know, if you if your real goal was to inspire conversation. Um, I don't think that's these are the conversations you really wanted to inspire. Jets and Bills both remained in the locker room. The Vikings honored George Floyd in their pregame. Vikings also wore say their names on their T-shirts, which is amazing because the same league wouldn't let you uh, let, let the Cowboys salute the, the police officers that were uh, killed in Dallas. Right. The Washington football team was out on the sidelines during the anthem. The Eagles were inside for the anthem. Uh, it doesn't seem like anybody was coordinated. All Cowboys players and two Ram players came out for the uh, playing of Lift Every Voice, which people have called the Black National Anthem. Black National Anthem, yeah. right. Kaepernick's quote is this. Uh, this is all propaganda. He said, while the NFL runs propaganda about how they care about black life, they are still actively blackballing Eric Reed for fighting for the black community. Eric set two franchise records last year as one of the best defensive uh, players in the league. Yeah, so that's the point, right? I mean, what good did you do if uh, you 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 have um, your crowd booing you in certain? I mean, as they did in in the 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 Texans game, um, you have you know you still have Colin Kaepernick booing you because they don't like that you're that you're taking. Uh, you know, they're just the uncoordinated. It's so amazing to me because the NFL has always been so buttoned up and had it together on so many fronts. It always felt anyway, like they were, they were light years ahead of everybody else. Um, when it came to thinking through 
concepts and and you know uh, possibilities and what do we need to worry about and how might we be two steps ahead on this one they are just it's they right they're they're Barney Fife with a six shooter so uh, let's talk about your podcast so many people are efforting to get back on the field in high school in college just to play sports we're not talking about pro sports we're talking about to play sports that's kind of the theme of your new uh, podcast right yeah, it really began, Brian. I mean, you and I have obviously done uh, a lot of work together over the years, and um, grateful for our for our partnership on on three great books. But in but when I first when you first said something to me about wanting to write a book, I grabbed the books that you previously done, and one of them was the games still matter, right? The games do matter. Excuse me. And it was your interviews with uh, some pretty extraordinary people over the years in which you talk to them about their, their sporting background. And I always thought, wow, that would be interesting to pick up and maybe do something more with. And a couple of years ago, saw an Ernst & Young study that said that they were looking for commonalities among C-level executives in Fortune 500 companies. And um, uh, the number one commonality was that they played sports. And uh, among men, it was in the 60 percentile range, but among women – in the C-level executive suites of major companies in America, the number was 92% played played sports at a significant level, so much so that it mattered to them in the way that they would grow to lead. And so I thought, what a cool idea, basically to to, to steal your idea from from years ago, um, and but but bring it forward in some ways. Interview these folks on. And, and let you hear the passion in their voice about what what being an athlete taught them. And, and some of the people we've lined up are, and that we've already interviewed, the, the CEO of Top Golf, right, Dolph Burley, uh, just some of the great leaders in American business. And and they'll tell you, I mean, sports changed the way they thought about everything they did. And um, and so we're it's a it's a, it's been a fun journey to work on this. Um, during the pandemic, it's kind of been my it's been my my pivot from public speaking, um, but it's been really exciting. I can understand that. So, Don, how do you get the podcast? Uh, well, it, as you said, if you go to donyeager.com, there's a podcast there, but it's also on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, all the big ones have it. It's called Corporate Competitor Podcast. And um, and the um, and the as is typical, I guess, when you begin a podcast, where we've got the next twelve guests already interviewed, and it's really, really extraordinary. The um, some of the people and and what they learned right. um, by being athletes. So, uh, as you know, from as an as a former athlete, there's just so much that you can take from that experience. That um, you can apply into your leadership, whether it's at home, uh, at work, or um, or, or uh, t- taking millions of listeners along with you. Gotcha. Hey, uh, Don, congratulations on it. Should be good. You find out you don't have to win a championship to get a benefit. Uh, your your glory is delayed, not denied. Don Yeager, thanks so much. Hey, thanks, Brian. Always great. All right, talk to you soon. Uh, listen, by the way. If you uh, if you have anything to say about the show at any moment, just because I know people listen at different times because you get the podcast uh, on different different ways, 
Go to BrianKillMe.com. Click on, let me hear what you have to say, and it doesn't all have to be good. I don't think I needed to tell you that, but I'll get to some of that next hour. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome to Monday. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. Hope you had a great weekend. Happy to be with you for, uh, live in New York City and heard around the country, heard around the world. Uh, we're going to have uh, New York Post's own Michael Goodwin joining us shortly. And then we're going to go out to Gotham Comedy Club owner Chris Mazzilli. I don't know if you saw him yesterday. He was with Jerry Seinfeld and Senator Schumer as they talked about getting performers back on stage and doing it in a responsible way. Also getting some money. These comedians, these, uh, you know, not everybody is... Uh, a, a country music superstar or a rock and roll legend where they can just live off what they've done in the past. And these emerging stars or mid-level stars have nowhere to go. And I think they're getting lost in the mix. These comedy clubs are just dying on the vine in these major cities where they've had success before and they're waiting for a downturn, but they're not ready for zero revenue for eight months. So Chris Mazzilli inside Gotham Comedy Club, the comedy club that Jerry Seinfeld called uh, the best in the country. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Michael Goodwin's waiting in the wings, and of course, we know about the big exchange over the weekend, where uh, it was great advice from this fantastic mayor who came out and tweeted, "Hey, go out and enjoy the day, everyone, and be socially distant and wear your mask." And where the president responded with, "Yeah, first get mugged, and then uh, have to be a victim of crime." And here he says, but people don't want to get mugged, beaten up, or killed. Let New York's finest, who proudly endorse me, do their job. We hire a crime squad and fired police. They will bring safety back to New York City fast. Nice little brawl. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The two deputies were doing their job, minding their own business, uh, watching out for the safety of the people on the train and... Seen somebody just walk up and just start shooting on them. Uh, there you go. And that is uh, a little bit of Alex Villanueva, the sheriff, talking about the war on cops. He came to Los Angeles again. Two assassination attempts in L.A. at the LAPD. And it got worse as the ambulance is streaming and screaming towards the emergency room in the hospital. Protest were uh, outside Black Lives Matters, they claim, saying, let them die. Number two. Obviously, the internal polls that we're seeing, it shows momentum on our side. Uh, we're seeing the president leading or tied in these battleground states. Mercedes Schlapp uh, on America's Newsroom. Internal polls show momentum on the president's side. 50 days to go. The state of the race. The president barnstorming while his opponent does nothing over the weekend and a virtual event today. Number one. I say the president is the wrong man for the job but you're known as the reporter who doesn't put his thumb on the scale and yet at the end of this book you do just that it's a conclusion based on evidence woodward's 18 conversations lead him to that conclusion where we have a pushback on him saying the president sat and lied to the american people and sat on intelligence about the seriousness of the virus and we'll give you that shortly but let's welcome to michael goodwin michael welcome back Thank you, Brian. You also are a journalist. 
And do you feel it's okay to do a book about somebody? And even though you've done, I think, 20 presidents or whatever you've done over the course of 50 years, you make a conclusion he's not worthy of the position? Well, um, I'm not surprised that Woodward uh, reached that decision because Woodward has put his thumb on the scale throughout his entire career. I mean, that's what a book is. I mean, a book is, yes, he's had he's had this relationship with the Washington Post, uh, but as I understand it, he rarely writes for the paper anymore. It's essentially the books are his entire career now. Um, so, he, I mean, that's frankly what readers expect from a book. Uh, they expect the author to reach a conclusion, uh, to sum up the evidence in some way, whether it's a biography of a of a dead president or an artist or anything else. I think you buy a book for for the depth of research, uh, for the insight, and ultimately for the readers, for the uh, author's conclusion. Now, whether that conclusion exp- is expressed explicitly or implicitly will vary. But I, but I'm not surprised in this case that Woodward reached that conclusion. My only surprise, Brian, is that the president agreed to meet with him or talk to him 18 times. Uh, to, to me. The, that is just poor judgment. I mean, there was no question where Woodward was going to come out on this. Yeah, and in the end, it really hurt the president because he was trying to make the argument. They were, you know, down, the cases are down 18 percent, deaths down 19 percent. And then we have a situation where the country gradually opening, pressure on Democratic mayors to do it. And now you have the president saying, and I understand exactly what he meant. I'm not going to panic people. Especially when it comes out, the scientists were still trying to figure it out. I thought one of the most impactful interviews took place on Face the Nation with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who was running the FDA, left the administration, and at times has been critical during this pandemic. But he's been a very steady voice. Listen to what he was asked by Margaret Brennan about the president's fault. Cut eight. For any president, their very first responsibility is to protect the American public. From your point of view, do you think the critical failing here was one of public messaging or was it operational? Well, look, the public messaging wasn't clear and consistent in the outset and could have been better at all levels of government. Um, I think if you look back uh, in February and I think when history looks back, the biggest failing over that month was that we were we were situationally blind. We had no idea where this virus was and wasn't spreading. And so when it came time to have to shut down cities, Rather than focus on the cities that were truly epidemic, like New York City, we went for a simultaneous shutdown order across the whole country, when that w- was unnecessary now in retrospect, because there were a lot of cities where the virus wasn't spreading at that time, and we could have focused our mitigation. But we had no diagnostic tests in the field to screen people. So he's saying he's situationally blind because he didn't know what was hitting them. And then he went on to say this, cut 10. Are you saying he was failed by health officials? Are you letting him off the hook? Look, I think in this respect, the White House leadership was failed by health officials. Um, We did not have a diagnostic in the field, uh, so we couldn't screen for it. We should have. We should have started working on that in January. And we over-relied on a surveillance system that was built for flu and not for coronavirus without recognizing that it wasn't going to be as sensitive at detecting coronavirus spread as it was for flu. And he went on. To me, at 11 o'clock in the morning... He just effectively countered the whole Woodward narrative. Well, you know, Brian, I I have been saying and and writing for some time that if you look back uh, with a a single standard at every public official in America, 
you will find something wrong with what they did, something seriously wrong with what they did or said. I mean, whether it's Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, uh, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Andrew Cuomo, Gavin Newsom. I mean, you can go up and down the line and you can find some flaw in how we approach this. But that this has become a totally partisan uh, uh objective now, I think is is really a shame because there is a lot to learn. Everybody made mistakes. It's like the nature of war. So it's not about whether you go back and just second guess everybody, you know, because of the election coming. Uh, I, I just think that that is, that is the reflection on what our country has become, how polarized it has become, how the media has become an instrument of, this, of destruction for this president. Uh, I have no doubt that Donald Trump said some things that don't quite add up. But I think if you look at and, – and, but so did Andrew Cuomo and Nancy Pelosi. The question is what did they do, not what did they say. To me, what you say is, is secondary. It's what you do that matters most. And so I think if we're going to judge everybody, it should be the single standard of what did they do and when did they do it. Because that made all the difference in the world. And the president, to his credit, I think, mobilized industry. He mobilized the government to, to get ventilators, to get equipment, all of, the, all of these things that the president did to shut down the flights from China, shut down the flights from Europe. All of these were controversial things when he right. did them. The Democrats opposed him on these things. They said it was too draconian. Well, now it wasn't draconian enough, apparently. So. I just think the second guessing is just now a partisan game and has very little to do with the reality right. of how the nation reacted to the coronavirus. Talk about different times, different issues. I'm keeping my eye on the Middle East. It's been the, the occupying of foreign policy since I was in high school. Uh, as long as Israel's there, there's never going to be peace in the Middle East. Israel's got to go. They're, it's united the Arab world against them. The Palestinian cause is too great. We've got to support them. Now we're looking at a situation where because of the president's pressure on Iran, because Iran is such a legitimate threat, because Israel is not, and because Egypt and Jordan did the hard part in the 70s and 1994 with Jordan, now all of a sudden people are looking around saying, wait a second, uh, Iran is the problem. Israel is not the problem. And I think that uh, we're going to recognize Israel and exchange ambassadors, UAE, now Bahrain over the weekend. And then it looks like Oman and Sudan will be next. And Saudi Arabia is making moves that they might recognize Israel. Now, look, I know how quickly things can change. But when you start digging in and realizing that Israel, they're starting to realize Israel is really no threat to them. And you have in 2018 the king of uh, Saudi Arabia saying Israel has a right to a homeland. This is something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime, and it's happening right now. It is a remarkable development, Brian. And if if anyone else were doing this except Donald Trump, uh, this this new person, if it were a Democrat, would be the king of the world, the king of peace. Uh, but Donald Trump is doing it, so it's eh, meh, no big deal. But it is a big deal. It, it is an enormous deal, as you correctly outlined. And I think the key to it, that it was, it was able to be done because of the president's posture toward Iran. Uh, breaking away from the, the misbegotten nuclear deal that Barack Obama negotiated, uh, 
breaking away from the coddling of Iran, the, the sending it of money, the welcoming it back into the family of nations, not criticizing its treatment of human rights, uh, the president uh, imposing harsh sanctions, taking out Soleimani, the, the mayhem and death uh, general of the, of the Quds forces. These are huge events that show that the president was on the side of the anti-Iran governments. And so all of these governments are now uh, banding together in an alliance, effectively, with Israel, with the United States, against the mullahs. And that is, the, that is what's reshaping the map of politics in the Middle East. But, you know, the New York Times and the others who were all for the Iranian deal, who were all for Obama's uh, coddling approach to Iran, they, they didn't care about what Iran was doing these other, in these other countries, all the mischief, all the violence. That was somewhat of a sidelight. But uh, Trump correctly saw was this was part of the main feature. This is part of the Iranian identity. And if you are going to tolerate them spreading terror, then you are going to ultimately have them with a nuclear weapon, a terrorist country with a nuclear weapon. That's where the Obama policies were leading. The Arabs knew that. Israel knew that. And now they have bonded together in a remarkable new alliance that, as you say, erases the history and really puts the Palestinians to the side. Uh, much, much to their own uh, achievement, the Palestinians refused to negotiate with Israel, with the Trump administration, and now they have been left behind by their fellow Arabs because they were intransigent, because they were playing yeah. a game that was not a serious game. And, Michael, we know to dig down. We know when they elected Hamas and then they split the West Bank and Gaza with different legislators, there was not even a, there was not even a Yasser Arafat to not deal with. So there was no deal. Hamas is there to eliminate Israel. There's no, there's no plan B, and, that, and they're getting caught up. But bottom line is, here's Jared Kushner on the approach, basically saying what you said. Cut 38. What this does is it brings people in that region closer together. President Trump took an unconventional approach. His first trip was to Saudi Arabia. He brought the, the, the Middle East together. He eliminated the caliphate of ISIS. He pushed back Iran, and he's starting to bring people together around shared opportunity. And so it may not be the most popular political thing to do, but it's common sense. People. So just your thought, it's intentional. Yes, fortuitous that the pressure on Iran opened this up. Moving the capital of Jerusalem was something that showed he was for real. So Israelis feel more peace and the Middle East feels more peace as we pull away and look towards our big nemesis, and that's China. It's an amazing series of events. It is, and and Jared Kushner makes a good a good up, a point there too, Brian, which is that economic opportunity uh, was a very big part of this. It's a very big part of the deal between Serbia, Serbia and uh, Kosovo, which is to, to an economic deal, and that's what Jared was pushing with a lot of the Arab countries too. Let's let's open up the economies. Let's do trade. Let's do all kinds of things that will create job and opportunities for your citizens. And so that was a very big part of this. But don't forget. 
too, that the president's embrace of Israel, as you mentioned, moving the embassy, uh, uh, recognizing the yep. Golan Heights annexation, etc., all of these gave Israel the confidence to work with the president in making these deals with Arab countries. And that was another mistake of Obama's. He treated Israel with the back of his hand. He tried to force uh, concessions that Israel felt would have harmed its internal security. And so he got nothing out of anybody. The president uh, matched the strength with strength against Iran. And that's what rallied the gotcha. Arab countries to the cause. It's strength. It was the strength that President Trump has shown in embracing Israel. It's Israel's right. strength. And, and that's what the Arab countries were looking for, was a leader they could rally behind. Obama was not that leader. Right. Trump has been. And it's a good counter to Russia's influence in Syria, now Absolutely. Lebanon and Iran, as well as China's. Uh, great move. Uh, great point. Uh, Michael Goodwin is in your column of the New York Post. Fox News contributor M. Goodwin underscore NY Post. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure, Brian. Thank uh, you. Hey, when we come back, your turn. one 408 Getting past all the rhetoric. It's Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. one 866 By the way, we're going to have Lara Logan and then Chris Mazzilli, who owns Gotham Comedy Club. Jerry Seinfeld, Chuck Schumer there yesterday. Try to get some attention to those stage shows that have been so miserably just pummeled by this pandemic. Susan, listen on WABC in Brooklyn, New York. Susan. Hey, Brian, um, I think think that we talk a lot about COVID and the economy, yep. but the school choice and education reform issue needs to come way up on the radar scale. Uh, the president has a great record on it and speaks about it. But now that we see that the next generation of Americans has been turned against our country through our education system, that we need to like really see that this has to be forefront. And school choice, which was just voted down in the Senate by every Democrat to give opportunity scholarship. So this is like, I really want to see this. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And Susan, this no, is a, across the board, people support this. You know, and also I think it's important, too, most of the private schools are open, K through 12. You know, you know what else is going to help? Most of them are playing sports. So they're finding a way to make it happen. Because they have tuition, they have incentives, teachers want to get paid, the kids want to go to school, and they also want to be safe. So that tuition doesn't come in and people just switch over to public school if everybody's out. So they're incentivized to be there for the kids. And a lot of kids are frustrated. They're still in their bedrooms, uh, on their laptop, going to school, and they're not playing sports. Laura Logan's next. Going to talk about Antifa in our streets, where it started, where it's going, and so much more. Brian Kilmeade Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. And I get along very well with Erdogan. 
even though you're not supposed to, because everyone says what a horrible guy, but you know, for me it works out good. I, it's funny, the, the relationships I have, the tougher and meaner they are, the better I get along with them. You'll explain that to me someday, okay, but maybe it's not a bad thing. The easy ones are the ones that maybe don't like as much or don't get along with as much. <laughs> that is uh, the president talking to Bob Woodward endlessly. Laura Logan's with us right now, uh, award-winning investigative journalist, but you know that. You've been watching her for years. Now she's with Fox Nation, brand-new series. Uh, she's got five new episodes out. Even through the pandemic, she's still doing it. Uh, Laura, welcome back. Thank you so much, Brian. Hey, I just heard this for the first time together. We wanted to put it on the air right away. This was on Good Morning America this morning. How do you feel about a president saying with Erdogan and the meaner they are, the better I get along with them? Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, you know, the thing is that uh, the interesting thing to me about uh, President Trump is that he's really um, put a, I mean, he's he's carried out his own revolution in diplomacy, right? Because uh, he does everything different. And we got so used to covering, you know, one president after another, pretty much following the same kind of protocols. And then suddenly a guy comes along and he says, wait a minute, you don't have to do it that way. And what's been so interesting is seeing all these bureaucrats standing up screaming, you know, um, and shouting. It's like, uh, you can't do this, you can't do that. Well, why not, is what his answer was. And he's been very effective, as we've seen recently from some of the um, peace deals that he's pulled off in the Middle East. And, of course, nobody wants to give him credit for that because you can't normalize President Trump because then you'll admit that people in this country voted for change, real change, not the change that Obama promised and didn't deliver, but real change. And and so when I hear these kind of things, I mean, it makes me smile a little bit because you know he's driving, you know, all those people who hate him, he's driving them crazy um, by saying that. But at the same time, there's something very interesting going on because he's making things happen that uh, no one else has made happen. Especially you in the Middle East, you don't need to read it in a textbook. You lived it. You know, everybody knows oh, you used to sleep on the floor in Iraq and Afghanistan um, and, and and break stories and give people an idea what was happening on the ground. Uh, and then we saw the uh, and we saw the the revolutions taking place in all these different countries. And Israel is no longer the major problem. And it took this administration to come in and we got Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, I think Oman, Sudan and could be Saudi Arabia all normalizing relationship with Israel. Did you ever think this would happen in your lifetime? You know, I really didn't, Brian. And it's funny you say that because I remember being a young reporter in the second intifada in the Palestinian territories and being shot at by the Israelis and the Palestinians would throw stones and, you know, um, don't rush into the hospitals in Gaza and seeing the wounded and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I was so passionate as a young reporter and all the older reporters would say to me, oh, don't get too worked up. They'll never have peace. In the Middle East, right? We've been through this before. We went through, uh, you know, during the first intifada. There'll be another intifada, but they'll never ever figure this out. And that was really, you know, how so many people felt. And it was very interesting to see what Trump did is instead of trying to, you know, basically uh, till the same field, right, and get the um, Israelis and the Palestinians to make an agreement, he went to uh, all the countries in the region who were already working with Israel behind the back of the international community and behind, you know, their own people, right? They were doing it secretly anyway. And he, um, you know, one by one, he's... uh, 
he's taken these countries and he's made deals with them, which, of course, isolates the Palestinians to a degree. Um, and people are standing up saying, oh, you know, the poor Palestinians, he's taking away their, you know, their bargaining power. But the reality is that all of those countries were using the Palestinians, right? They weren't actually um, letting the Palestinians become citizens in their own countries, and they weren't actually helping them get their own state. So, uh, in fact, what Trump has done is just call them out. And, uh, and of course, the Palestinians, now that this is exposed, they have some difficult choices to make. But if you really want to change the dynamic, this has changed the dynamic. For better or for worse, we have to see. But obviously, in many respects, it's very clearly for the better. If I'm an American who cared about Israel, the Israel had never been safer. At the same time, we know about the Iranian threat and what's happening in Lebanon and Hezbollah fueled by Iran. We get it. I understand that. But now when you no longer have to worry about Egypt, since Morsi's now out, since you no longer have to worry about Jordan, that peace is, has withheld, obviously held pretty strong. Saudi Arabia is not a threat. They've done everything except normalize. And I mentioned everything else. Now all of a sudden you have other countries from other regions recognizing Jerusalem as a capital. Things are breaking their way. But I want to bring you local because you have another well, area of your expertise. Brian, Go ahead. you know, one quick thing on that is actually the Iran deal is at the center of everything that you're seeing. Because when the Obama administration made that deal, they sent a message to Israel that we are not really with you. That's what the message was. And they sent a message to all the Gulf Arab allies that the U.S. had and said, hey, we're not really with you either. And so that motivated all these countries to make the deals that they're mo- making now. Now, that's actually what's at the root cause of this. And what Trump did was recognize that sentiment and exploit it. Absolutely. Jared Kushner leading the charge, it seems. Uh, so I want to bring you to Antifa. It's part of your series that was going to be released now on uh, on Fox Nation. you got to download it. This is the mystery of what's happening in our cities. They seem to organize the protests uh, doing such damage, sustained damage in Portland, in Seattle, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in Rochester, sustained damage. When asked, Jake Sullivan, the senior policy advisor for Joe Biden, when asked, what about these Democratic cities and the damage? Listen to what he said. Cut 34, 24. Vice President Biden believes that the, the single biggest difference between uh, success and failure with respect to uh, safety in these communities has been Donald Trump, not the local leadership. It has been Donald Trump pouring gasoline on the fire and causing more damage, more wreckage, more division, more violence, inciting his supporters, for example, to drive convoys through the streets, firing paintball and and spraying pepper spray. So you have your reporting. Jake Sullivan has his reporting. Laura, do you want to push back on that? Well, actually, I would say I have my reporting, which is based on fact, and it is not politically defined. And what you just heard is um, the biggest load of disinformation and propaganda and political nonsense that you could ever, ever have come up with, right? Because it flies in the face of everything that is true. Look, since the 2016 election, the uh, the left has pushed this narrative that if you are a Donald Trump supporter or you are Donald Trump, you are a white supremacist and a neo-Nazi and you are racist. And it is not true, okay? There's many black supporters of Donald Trump. There's many Hispanic supporters. And there's many white people who are not racist. So this is a, a tired, old disinformation information strategy that flies in the face of what is obviously true, which is that these democratic cities, which are Democrat-run, many times with African-American police chiefs, 
um, many of whom who are female, um, have are the center of this violence. Why? Because that is the place where you can control what happens on the ground, where you can sustain it if you want to, or you can shut it down if you want to. And that's the only reason that this violence is continuing, because those cities like Portland have banned facial recognition software, they've banned tear gas, they've banned all the things that could put these um, this violence to an end. And why? Because they want it to continue. They're sending a message that they um, want everyone to see, which is that there is civil unrest in America and that the president has supposedly lost the support of the people, i.e. the government has lost the support of the government. It's in their propaganda. In fact, it's all over their propaganda. And that's what they're doing, and it's deliberate. These tactics are deliberate. And the fact that it's not happening in any uh, Republican-run cities and states says it all for you. So it's it's just the most dishonest lies. And, you know, one of the frustrations here is I'm not politically defined, right? And I'm not politically motivated, and I'm not ideologically motivated. That isn't my job. That's not what I do. I try to figure out what the facts are and figure out what the truth is. And it's so frustrating to see this false narrative being pushed all the time, you know, that Trump is anti-gay and and racist, etc., because that prevents us from having a real substantive conversation about anything. And it, it, you know, and it really has the effect of intimidating and silencing and terrorizing people. That's what it's designed to do. It's not designed to unite the country and to solve problems and move uh, forward together. It's designed uh, really to divide and destroy. And so then you, are, what I do as a journalist, I say, well, why would you want to do that? Who would want to do that? And who benefits from that? And I know who doesn't benefit from that. The American people, this country, the rest of the world that looks to the U.S. as a beacon of uh, freedom and democracy and um, something, you know, a real experiment of government by the people. That's what this is. This is actually a government of the people and by the people. And they want you to focus on Donald Trump because what they're doing is pushing at breakneck speed. They are putting, pushing through an agenda that obliterates the United States of America that you have known and the principles that you uh, you know believe in and have stood up for. And that's going to happen whether Donald Trump is around or not. This is not just about Donald Trump, but yeah. they've obscured um, that real agenda by making everybody focus on uh, you know Donald Trump's personality and by pushing this false narrative. Gotcha. There have been very few uh, Trump supporters who have uh, been out on the streets. Relatively speaking, the numbers are so tiny, and they really have, to a large degree, um, avoided uh, getting into uh, the kind of you know massive conflict. That um, let's not forget these these rioters are instigators. Right? They're, they're trained to incite. They want a reaction. They want to be able to say that there's a race war in America and that it's been caused by Donald Trump. And so it's quite extraordinary that under such provocation, yep. the, the police and the rest of the country have not risen to the bait. And they haven't. Because why? Because America is not really divided. And because the people on the streets, this big show of force, that's what insurgents do, right? Insurgents want you to think that they're huge force and they've got yeah. all this backing behind them, but they don't. Uh, they really don't, because if they if they did, they would have been much more successful by now. And Laura, you wouldn't have to, you know, you wouldn't have to be Jake Sullivan just pushing a whole bunch of lies. Like there's not a single word that came out of his mouth that was true. 
every single thing he said is a lie. <laughs> and uh, they've pushed this over and over and over again. Oh, you know, Donald Trump has been dividing the country. No, if you were to go back and mine all that digital footage and pull out all the people who talk about how divided America is, they've been dividing America since the debates. The debates in the 2016 election, Don Lemon on CNN had one that for hours, he moderated it, and for hours they talked about the race crisis in America. And I was thinking, wow, because I knew, you know, I was in South Africa when Nelson Mandela became president, and he came out of prison and took office talking about unifying the nation, right? That didn't mean there was no racism in South Africa. It meant that he understood that unity, right? United we stand, divided Mm -hmm. we fall. And what did Obama do when he left office? Everyone's talking about the race crisis in America. How can you have a race crisis when the vast majority of white voters in this country have voted for a black president, not once, but twice? Yeah, I'm going to have to leave it there, Laura. It's all part of, like, your Antifa. Look at Antifa as part of the new series on Fox Nation. It drops on Friday. Uh, you got to check it out. It is awesome. Laura Logan, got to have you back. Thanks so much, Laura. Thank you, Brian. Take care. All right. When we come back, Chris Mazzilli, owner of Gotham Comedy Club. What was he doing with Senator Schumer and Jerry Seinfeld yesterday, and how does it affect you? We'll find out. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. From his mouth to to your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Big cities like New York and New York attitude with a great tradition of theater and performing that we have. New York audiences are tough, but that's great. And that's why we make great performers here. So this bill is so important to keep these places going. It makes the city exciting to walk down the street and know right inside that door some people are on stage and doing things. It gives the city energy and electricity. It's more than just a business. It is the spark of our culture here in this town. And one of the many, uh, I guess, casualties of this pandemic are performing arts, and especially these comedy clubs, not just in New York but other cities, but especially in New York, where this mayor's decision just to shut everything down, not give owners the opportunity to social distance responsibly and earn a living has been devastating. Joining us now is the owner of a club that I think is the best, and more importantly, Jerry Seinfeld is the best in the country, Gotham Comedy Club right here in New York City. Chris Mazzilli, welcome. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So tell us what you did with Senator Schumer yesterday and why everyone should pay attention. Well, it's really, really important. First of all, Schumer has a bill on the table called Save Our Stages that would help, you know, comedy clubs, jazz clubs, nightclubs, anything that has a stage. And it is so needed right now because we're going into our seventh month of being shut down. That's zero income. But we still have bills to pay. We have to pay Con Ed, and our Con Ed bills are based on our Con Ed usage from last year because they're not sending people out to read meters because of COVID. You know, we still have to pay insurance. Well, our insurance is based on sales from last year. So all our bills, you know, and even with landlords being gracious and maybe saying, I'm going to give you, uh, you know, you pay 25% rent or 50% rent, when you have no income, it's devastating to business. So if something like this doesn't happen and happen soon, my personal estimate is you're going to see a huge majority of these businesses just fold. It's not a sustainable thing. 
And I'll tell you what, the comedians, obviously, uh, you're the one who allows these comedians to break in or flourish. It's uh, prestigious to get on your stage, but now no one can get on the stage. Chris, with all you know about making a living, knowing that being social response, socially distanced responsible would be the key to it. Don't you wish people would give you the opportunity just to make it work and see if you can do it, which we know you can? Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you, see, we're actually comedy clubs and most of these venues are set up, you know, we, with the way we sell tickets, we can trace who comes in. The way the things are set up and spaced out, we can easily, you know, with tables, separate them. Even the lines coming in. So we should at least be given the opportunity to look at what's going on in Long Island and Westchester. Restaurants have been open at 50% capacity for, I think it's about two months now. There's been no spike no in problem. cases out there, you know, at, at all. So we at least should have the opportunity Give, it, give us a shot. That would really help out a lot. So in the, in the meantime, your own former PPP, what would this, how much money would this bill be? It's $10 billion overall, and um, establishments have the opportunity to get up to $12 million. So this would, it, it actually, it, it's a very, very good bill, and hopefully it gets passed and passed soon. How have you stayed in business, Chris? How have you done it? What's it been like? It's been very, very hard. You know, fortunately, we're an established business. We've been around a long time, and you could never prepare for something like this, but we're about as prepared as we, we could be. And when a guy like Seinfeld, yeah, he has enough money sent, but how many other comedians do? Not a lot. You know, and if you look at it, like I kind of ran the numbers. I, I think since this, we closed on March 14th. Since we've been closed, we've canceled roughly 570 shows. Wow. You know, so you're talking about somewhere close to 3,000 paid spots for comedians are canceled. And it's, you know, most of these comedians, they don't have other jobs. This is how they make their living. So they're out of work, you know. And even, like, you, you just take Gotham as one entity of many here in the city. We employ over 60 employees that are out on employment right now. Chris, we're pulling for you. I always remember I've been checking in with you. I know how hard you work to get where you are, to be the best in the business. And now hopefully you can keep it going. Chris Mazzilli, Gotham Comedy Club. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade here, coming to you from New York and heard around the world. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, Brett Baer, at the bottom of the hour, we're going, to have, uh, we're going to have a special guest, Michael Anton. We haven't had him on in a while. He's got a book out that really puts in perspective what's at stake in this election. We thought it was really important for you to hear it. Uh, it is called, uh, Michael's book is called America, the Point of No Return. And it's uh, the stakes. That's really what it's, uh, what it's about. Uh, and we also talk about somebody who's been on the inside, is on the outside, and knows that this election, with 50 days less, have a lot of uh, room to run, which is amazing because Joe Biden, ahead in most polls, is choosing not to run at all, saying he's being socially responsible. I doubt it. I don't think he's capable. I don't think he's capable of leaving Delaware and doing four four events in four days. He does an event, he disappears. Does an event, disappears. Does an event with no people around, takes no questions, disappears. President of the United States in Nevada, closed event. 
uh, closed doors, I should say, not closed to people, people with masks behind it, but not in front of them, has a big event, big event in North Carolina, big event in Jupiter, uh, South Carolina, uh, I mean, excuse me, Jupiter, Jupiter, Florida, then goes over to Michigan, sells that again. Today, he's going out to California to see the devastating uh, effects of these fires. And then it's to Arizona for another event while still trying to run the country. And tomorrow he's going to be uh, formally uh, welcoming in representatives from the UAE as well as Israel. And they have some more big announcements internationally if anyone's paying attention to go over. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The two deputies were doing their job, minding their own business and watching out for the safety of the people on the train and seeing somebody just walk up and just start shooting on them. Unbelievable. I wish I wasn't telling you this story, but that's exactly what took place. I'm not talking about a movie. I'm talking about a war on cops. It happened in Los Angeles. Two assassination attempts in Los Angeles. Uh, They were just two officers, deputy sheriffs, sitting on the side of the road in their car. Uh, They are okay. We think they're in critical condition, but look like they will survive. This has to be a turning point in the war on cops. It has got to stop. Number two. Obviously, the internal polls that we're seeing, it shows momentum on our side. Uh, we're seeing the president leading or tied in these battleground states. Mercedes Schlapp, kind of, and I'll just crash that my uh, book stand. 50 days to go, the state of the race. The president's barnstorming the country while the Biden team keeps it virtual. Will it be enough? to Had the Latin vote, the Latino vote, will it be enough to close the gap? Number one. I say the president is the wrong man for the job but you're known as the reporter who doesn't put his thumb on the scale and yet at the end of this book you do just that it's a conclusion based on evidence woodward's 18 conversations over nine hours with president trump and believe me he thinks that president trump is not ready for this job as you just heard but now when it comes to the coronavirus, a medical professional has just stepped up and said the true story of what happened in January and February. And now it's really not the president's fault and facts tell a much different story than Woodward thinks he got. And that's where we'll begin. Michael Anton is a lecturer and research fellow at Hill, Hillsdale College and former national security official with the Trump administration. He's the author of a new book called The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Michael, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Michael, what do you think of Bob Woodward's book and as how it's being played out right now? What do you read into it? Well, uh, look, I understand when the president says that he doesn't want uh, um, to induce panic in the population. And let's also remember, nobody knew what this, including me and you and everybody and the president and the medical experts didn't know what this thing was in February, March. Uh, I think we were all braced for the worst and we were all willing to give the benefit of the doubt to experts who said, well, we, you know, we need to lock down, we need to take extreme measures, at least initially. But over time, the president's initial, I think, gut instinct has been proved correct, which is this isn't as bad as uh, the doomsayers predicted. It didn't lead to nearly uh, as big a, a health catastrophe. And the lockdowns were uh, basically a mistake. And then certainly, if they were ever useful, have gone on way too long. And the president's instinct, as I recall, from the early spring or the late winter, early spring was, you know, he didn't want to he didn't want to lock down and, and stop the this fantastic economy that we had built up, uh, you know, after a, a great recession and decades of, of stagnation and, and, you know, wage losses or wage uh, wages being flat. And, and that was his that was his early instinct. He was willing to give the benefit of the doubt to some people who said, 
you know, for medical reasons, we've got to be more cautious. But at some point by June, in my opinion, by June, it was obvious. This wasn't what the big disaster everybody said it was going to be. The lockdowns were counterproductive, and we we're doing more harm than good. And well, I think uh, we need to open it up. Former um, FDA uh, uh, director, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, weighed in and said, listen, uh, the president's guilty of maybe hiring the wrong medical professionals. And he said he basically was telling them, you know, we might be flying blind here. And it kind of shocked Margaret Brennan of uh, Face the Nation. And here's the follow-up question after Dr. Scott Gottlieb said, let me just tell you what's happened in January, February, because I was talking to him. No one really knew we were up against, and we thought we were treating the flu. The other thing is when President Xi calls the president, he told him a different story than the actual facts on the ground. So you can't make someone be honest when the H-O, when the WHO can't get in and tells a different story as if yeah. they did. There's trouble. Cut 10. This- Are you saying he was failed by health officials? Are you letting him off the hook? Look, I think in this respect, I, the White House leadership was failed by health officials. Um, we did not have a diagnostic in the field, uh, so we couldn't screen for it. We should have. We should have started working on that in January. And we over-relied on a surveillance system that was built for flu and not for coronavirus without recognizing that it wasn't going to be as sensitive at detecting coronavirus spread as it was for flu. And he went on. I'm not going to take all your segment, uh, uh, Mike, to, to take, it, to take, a, uh, to take away your to time. A, but listen. It points to a problem that I write about in the book, The Stakes, which is this alleged rule of expertise that we can take – political questions. What, you know, we're suppo- supposed to be a democracy. We're supposed to deliberate together on what we want to do. And there's been this idea that, no, no, experts know everything, and they tell you what to do, and you have to do it. And if you don't follow what they're doing, you're anti-science or something. That's anti-democratic. As a people, we get to deliberate together. How dangerous do we think this is? What measures do we think are appropriate? Do we think the economy should be locked down for months? Do we think schools should be closed? Do we think everyone should stay home? Those are fundamentally political questions. They are not questions that get decided by experts and then imposed on us unless we want an entirely different system of government that's a lot more like the Chinese system. And I think you agree with me, Brian, neither you nor I nor the president nor at least half the country wants that. Well, when you look at what's happening in Chicago, when you look at what's happening in Portland, Seattle, New York, at times, Austin, Texas, often, and when you see that happening, people say, well, that's President Trump's watch. This is his presidency. That's why we need to change. What does Michael Anton say? I I, I think, look, to me, the two biggest issues right now are uh, the riots and the lockdowns. President Trump wants to end the lockdowns, and he, wants to, and he wants to crack down on the rioting. Joe Biden wants to continue the lockdowns, so he said. He said he'll, he might shut down the whole country with some presidential mask order. I don't know where the president gets the authority to shut down the whole country, but Biden apparently thinks that if he becomes president, he might have it. And he, he's weakly uh, condemned violence blandly, but he won't condemn Antifa. He won't condemn BLM. He won't condemn any of his own supporters going out there. And, and remember, it's members of his own party that are the mayors and governors of these states and cities where this stuff is happening who are egging it on and or refusing to do anything about it. To me, this election all comes down to if you want to end the lockdown and end the rioting, you vote for Trump. If you want to continue the lockdown and continue the rioting, you vote for Biden. It's that simple. Well, how would this country be different right now if Hillary Clinton had won? Um, 
I think if Hillary Clinton had won, oddly enough, things would be better and worse. Better only in the sense that the left thought they were going to win that election. And so the transition to their absolute power would have been calmer than what we have seen in 2020. But they, in every other respect, they would be worse because she would be enacting the same agenda that Biden wants to enact. And, and she would have had, a, obviously, a four-year head start because there would have been no President Trump. But also, all the things that President has been able to do in four years. You know, he hasn't completed the wall, but he's built a lot of wall. Illegal uh, immigration is down. Uh, all of these visa scams that deprive American workers of jobs, uh, those are way down. People are getting jobs. Wages are up. I mean, at least the economy was going very strong before these lockdowns harmed it so much. So all the progress that we've seen in four years, and we need another four years, uh, would have been, wouldn't have happened. Um, I, I think that, you know, the road to Permanent blue state politics, California from coast to coast, New York from coast to coast, we'd be um, well on our way to it by now had Hillary Clinton won. So the only thing that would have been different is, at least this is my judgment or prediction, or you know, is that the sort of mass psychosis freakout that we got because the president won an election that nobody thought he was going to win, or at least not the left didn't think he was going to win. That might not have happened, but that just means that their path to sort of permanent California status, permanent New York blue state status for the entire country would have gone more smoothly and calmly, but it's still the policy effects on all the rest of us right. would have been the same and they would have been disastrous. So let's just talk about the reality on the ground. Mike Bloomberg's putting uh, tens of millions of dollars into Florida and the NRA last time put a ton of money, $54 million into President Trump's to support President Trump's campaign. So far, they've only put nine. We know what uh, trying to trouble that organization's going through. And there's a lot of billionaires who haven't coughed up that money yet. And the president's got might maybe right have to write his own checks. This is a critical time. Do you think he will? Uh, I think he'll do whatever he needs to do to win, but I also think he knows, as, as we know, that money doesn't buy elections anymore. If money bought elections, Mike Bloomberg would be the Democratic nominee. Uh, if money bought elections, Hillary would be president because I, I, you know, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but she outspent – uh, Donald Trump something like two to one in 2016. So I'm a little less worried about the money than uh, maybe I should be. Although I will say if any, if any billionaires and big Republican donors who are on the sidelines right now are listening, please donate because it certainly doesn't hurt, even if it may not be decisive. But, uh, you know, as you pointed out, uh, as I came on to the, into, into the segment, um, uh, Donald Trump is out there holding rallies. He's campaigning. He's traveling. He's going from state to state. Those kinds of things matter. Remember election night 2016, where uh, when Hillary, as far as I know, did zero events, and Donald Trump visited four states and ended campaigning at something like two o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, uh, he's got that energy and that uh, spark mm-hmm. to uh, that, I, that I think actually makes more of a difference than money. How would you characterize your time on the inside at the White House? Uh, well, first of all, I I had a, 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 a lot of fun. I, you know, I almost hate to say that, but it was fun. Uh, I enjoyed serving my country. I enjoyed getting to know the president. I didn't. I took that job not expecting that I would ever see him. I took a kind of mid-level job at a, at, a, at a bit of a distance from the president, knowing that that's what I was doing because that's what I wanted to do, wanted to serve and wanted to serve his agenda. But, you know, I thought I'd be one of these guys in some outer office, and I'd do my work, and I'd never see him. And it turns out I got to meet him early on, and I spent lots of time with him in 14 months and really got to know him and, 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 and was impressed by him and was a, a, grateful for everything that he's doing for the country and also just on a personal level, a, extremely grateful for the way he consistently treated me. Yeah, that, so now that you're on the outside, you're, you're helping him while you have your book out now. 
uh, the stakes. So when Bob Woodward comes out and says he's the wrong man for the job, and he's interviewed President Obama, President Bush, uh, he did a book on Carter, did a book on Ford, obviously Nixon. What do you what do you think about this? Well, look, I I know Bob Woodward slightly, although I haven't talked to him in a long time because I worked in the Bush White House when he wrote books about President Bush, and. I mean, look, whatever you think, everything he does is anonymously sourced, so it's hard to know what's true and what's not true. I, you know, I, I would just say, okay, Bob Woodward says Donald Trump is the wrong man. Well, who's Bob Woodward to judge whether Donald Trump is the wrong man? I'm an American citizen and a voter, and I think he's the right man for the job, in part because uh, I, I, I like his agenda. I think it's the right agenda for the country, and in part because I like the way he fights on behalf of the American people. Bob Woodward is not some expert who gets to decide this. Uh, to me, this is just part of the giant propaganda push, propaganda operation that the media pushes out through every channel, except for Fox News and your radio show and a few others, but most often every other channel. They're trying to make sure uh, that Americans only hear one message, which is that somehow Trump is unfit, Trump is wrong for the job or whatever. Well, at least half the country has the exact opposite opinion, and I hope it's more than half, and we'll find out on November 3rd. Well, Let's hope we find out on November 3rd, and it's all wrapped up on Election Day, although that seems like a, a doubtful possibility with all this mail-in voting and other nonsense. I know, uh, especially Colorado won their lawsuit, so they can continue to have the post. They're going to make the post office mail everybody a ballot, and we don't know if that's going to be with other states as well. Uh, most people who want to vote for President Trump will do it in person. Most people who want to vote for Joe Biden will do it in the mail. And now all hell will break loose. Uh, Michael Anton, go pick up his book. It's called The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Michael, thank you. Thank you. Uh, when we come back, we'll take your calls, one 408 You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Do you have any sense that that privilege has isolated and put you in a cave to a certain extent? Is it put me and I think lots of white privileged people in a cave and that we have to work our way out of it to understand uh, the anger and the pain particularly black people feel in this country. Do you no, you, you really drank the Kool-Aid, didn't you? you? Listen to you. Wow. No, I don't feel that at all. So the President of the United States clearly had a good time talking to Bob Woodward, but you can see how Bob Woodward sets you up. For example, his question of like, like I feel white privilege, and you, you know, you know what I mean, right? White privilege, you feel it at all? The headlines would be Donald Trump feels white, feels in a cave because of white privilege. You knew that would be the head of the chapter of the first story. That is, so he's saying that there is some racial injustice in the country, systemic racial injustice in the country. He says that earlier, but. Bob Woodward thinks it's 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 settled law that every white person feels as though they have white privilege. That is not I don't accept that at all. It depends on who you are. I don't know what Bob Woodward grew up with. I know that Donald Trump had money. But with that comes a lot of responsibility. And there's there's a plus or minus to everything. But they thought that was a big deal in 60 Minutes to include that in the piece. Pete. Listening in Reno, Nevada, uh, excuse me, Paul. Paul, everyone's talking about the president. Why did he have an indoor event? You were there. What was it like? 
actually, my wife and I attended the event on Saturday night, which was outdoors at the uh, Minden Airport. Okay. And they had uh, – the, and the reason I'm calling in is that I heard the press reports in, out of your network specifically the next day, and I was really disappointed in it, 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 they downplayed the amount of people that were there. Uh, my wife and I boarded – they had 20 full-length tour buses shuttling – uh, the uh, attendees over to the to the airport, and when my wife and I boarded the the tour bus with two hours still to go, and there's a huge crowd behind us, the bus driver told us that they had already shuttled over shuttled over to the event over 16,000 people. Wow! Uh, and then later on, I was told that in total there are 26 over 26,000 people that attended, and we had friends that had got there late, and there were. Uh, hundreds of people turned away at the last minute or at the doors. Because so the what was it? Did, in other words, was it a good event? Were you oh, glad you went? It was a fantastic event. It, in fact, it, it, my wife and I, my wife commented to me, this is the first time we'd ever been to a large venue where there's a lot of security and police, you know, maintaining order around the event. At, this is the first time we'd ever gone there where the police welcomed us in and said, hey, have a nice time. This is, a, you know, <laughs> welcome. Have a nice time. It was a fantastic event. And uh, very well run, uh, really well done. And Trump was a hoot, man. He he was just he what what a show. I wonder if it's going to convert uh, Nevada if it gets his column. It's a brand new game. Thanks so much. I appreciate the up uh, up close and personal look. I uh, got the true story from somebody who's there. Brett Bear next from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to the one with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I mean, look, what I have said privately is what I have said publicly. And that is, um, I think Biden's in an excellent position to win this election. Uh, but I think we have got to do more as a campaign than just uh, go after Trump. Wow, that was uh, Bernie Sanders prodding Joe Biden instead of being critical like he was Hillary Clinton, prodding Joe Biden to do more. They don't do anything. I mean, they got virtual events planned today, Jill and Joe, separate events, Kamala Harris. They're not going anywhere. President Trump, I think it's safe to say, is going places. He was in uh, Nevada over the weekend, and today he goes to uh, Los Angeles with Gary Newsom, uh, Gary Newsom, Gavin Newsom, Gary, uh, the governor of, uh, of of California, he'll be in Sacramento, I should say. And then he's um, and then he's going to head to an event in Arizona. I think that he's just sprinting to the finish. Joining us now is Brett Baer. He's the same Brett Baer, does all our, our campaign coverage as well as special report at six. Brett, welcome. I'm going to be hanging out with Gary Newsom later on. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we'll see about that. Um, what about Hawk Newsom of Black Lives Matter? He also would love to hang out with you. So let me ask you something, uh, Brett. Do you think there's a method to Bernie Sanders speaking out like that? Yeah, I mean, listen, he he has a lot of influence. He has uh, the left side of the party. Uh, he has people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other leaders on the progressive side who are pressuring uh, the Biden folks and will if he wins on policy. And um, so he wants to see more of that, you know, campaigning, ideally with somebody like AOC. But the Biden campaign knows that once that happens, it becomes a commercial. And for all the upside of unifying the progressives, 
um, they would likely lose some moderates in the suburbs and maybe even some disaffected Republicans uh, because of those linkages. So the president of the United States is going everywhere, and uh, Joe Biden's not going anywhere. And then you see the passion of these crowds. You see the passion in Nevada. We just had somebody that was just there. They talked about the, the tens of thousands that were there, and we saw it in Jupiter. We saw it in North Carolina. We saw it in Michigan. Then we saw it in Nevada over the weekend. Do you think this this is adding up to additional presidential support, or is he just going to appear in front of his base? Listen, I- you know, we saw this in 2016 when crowds, you know, they were being discounted. Um, there are crowds that are showing up even in the midst of COVID, and it's causing a lot of controversy. The indoor uh, rally is uh, obviously raising eyebrows in a lot of corners, but uh, the people are showing up and they are uh, supporting the president. I'm not sure it's it's fully showing up in polls, and some of it is um, – you know, we're going to have to see state by state. But the Biden, uh, the Trump campaign sees opportunity in Nevada. They see opportunity in a place like Minnesota. Uh, they really see a tight race in Florida, which is a must win for Trump. So that's why they're going all those places. Cook Political Report made two changes to its election forecast, moving Florida from lean Democrat to toss up and in Nevada from likely Democrat to lean Democrat. And they credit the rise in support among Latinos for Trump. Why now? It's a big deal. It's a, it's a real head-scratcher for the Biden campaign that they have not reached out more uh, to Latinos. And um, it really was not a focus of their convention, um, whereas the, the RNC convention, you know, did specifically have some messaging um, for, you know, Cuban-Americans in Florida about the socialism pitch and it really does you know move people especially of cuban heritage and then on the latino pitch about uh, the economy and um the hispanic uh, you know efforts um outreach by the trump campaign so the biden campaign i mean it's a real head scratcher and they're gonna have to change that if they worried about losing those numbers. You know, what's pretty amazing is a couple of things are happening now. It seems as though Biden, who couldn't raise any money, is raising a ton of money. And now Trump has kind of uh, hit a wall. And he says, I might have to put my own money in. And now who's stepping up for Democrats? Mike Bloomberg in Florida. It looks like he's going to put in, he he says uh, he's going to spend millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to help turn Florida blue. Yeah, it said a hundred million dollars. And listen, he's pledged a lot of support uh, before. I don't know how much has come through. He's definitely impacting a lot of house races as far as the money he's putting in. But clearly he's saying he's getting in the presidential game here with this with this effort. Listen, the money ish situation, I'd be surprised if um, if President Trump puts money into the campaign. I mean, I think. There'll be efforts of fundraising along the way here. Uh, And he claims and they claim that they have a lot of small donor things coming in. But the disparity between the two, at least last month, was about $100 million. So we know how Bob Woodward feels about the president. He says he's not worthy of the job. That's what he concluded from the book. And then the other thing he said is Donald Trump soft-pedaled the coronavirus. Remember, uh, this is February 7th. Cut two. It's also more deadly than your... You know, your, even your strenuous flus, 
You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's, I mean, it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more right. deadly. This is five per, you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. So I'm listening to that, and then Scott Gottlieb, I think, caught Face the Nation host Margaret Grenham by surprise when she basically asked him this, cut eight. For any president, their very first responsibility is to protect the American public. From your point of view, do you think the critical failing here was one of public messaging, or was it operational? Well, look, the public messaging wasn't clear and consistent in the outset and could have been better at all levels of government. Um, I think if you look back uh, in February, and I think when history looks back, the biggest failing over that month was that we were, we were situationally blind. We had no idea where this virus was and wasn't spreading. And so when it came time to have to shut down cities, rather than focus on the cities that were truly epidemic, like New York City, we went for a simultaneous shutdown order across the whole country, when that w- was unnecessary now in retrospect, because there were a lot of cities where the virus wasn't spreading at that time, and we could have focused on mitigation. But we had no diagnostic tests in the field to screen people. What do you think about that? And he went on to basically exonerate the president on this. First off, on what you just heard. Yeah. Listen, I, Scott is really a smart guy when it comes to this. And I, I, you know, I think he is somebody that uh, a lot of people turn to. He knows that uh, the CDC in the early days, um, because of the testing screw up, botched the early you know, efforts to get a test going quickly. And those and Fauci has talked about that. But the key thing to remember, and everybody focuses on what the president said, and rightly so, he's the president of the United States. But the experts around him and what they were saying publicly at the same time is also part of the picture. So when you put the whole puzzle together, that's what the experts were saying. It wasn't like he was at that moment, um, you know, saying a, a lot of things differently than Fauci was saying. And, you know, so when Fauci says, um, you know, there wasn't a disparity between what we told him yeah. privately and what he said publicly, I think it gets discounted in this whole look back. Now, he was not saying the same things as he was telling Bob Woodward, as he's saying, you know, that we have 15 cases, it's going to go down to zero, or it's going to wash itself out. He's saying that that's about keeping, you know, optimism alive. But um, I think the important thing is what the experts said. So, Scott, you know, it's interesting to say that that, uh, the testing issue is the biggest issue. When the war on terror was hot, and sadly it's not over, we're just ignoring it. But do you think that Ray Kelly was going to call a press conference every time he got a substantive lead that could blow up a series of buildings in New York City? He set up his own counterterror effort. I talked to people during that time when I covered the White House that, you know, the president was getting briefed at that time about terror threats that were about the size of a small phone book, you know, real, yeah, not not fake ones, real ones. And, it, you know, you're not going to go out and say all of that uh, every time. I think it's a little bit different. You know, it's like apples and oranges, but it's similar in the fact that um, what's said publicly matters. So I just want you to just get this last. So, you know, sometimes you see a host just stunned by the reaction. It might happen to you um, once in a while. I know it happens to me. But she was just floored by the fact that uh, Gottlieb 
was heading this direction and explaining what actually was happening in January and February, leading her to this. Cut 10. Are you saying he was failed by health officials? Are you letting him off the hook? Look, I think in this respect, the White House leadership was failed by health officials. Um, We did not have a diagnostic in the field, uh, so we couldn't screen for it. We should have. We should have started working on that in January. And we over-relied on a surveillance system that was built for flu and not for coronavirus without recognizing that it wasn't going to be as sensitive at detecting coronavirus spread as it was for flu because the two viruses spread very differently. Um, Those were two critical failings. Now, you could say, well, the president put those people in place. He's responsible. You know, you can make second-order arguments around that. But I think ultimately the White House did not have the information they need to make decisions. Brett. Uh, he spent his life in business, not studying the virus. I just think that if there was no Woodward book, we wouldn't even be discussing this, really. Uh, and I was just wondering, where do you think this conversation goes? Does a guy like Gottlieb, without the cachet of Woodward, does someone like that have traction in this argument? I mean, he should. He should be in the conversation, and we should be talking about it. But, but we're past that point as far as the hyperbole around it. What the president said to Woodward was different than what he was saying publicly. But you have to have all of the facts, like Gottlieb's talking about, about what the health experts were saying and doing or not doing yep. at the beginning. I think that's it. Um, we'll, we'll see. If, you know, people aren't supposed to take the military's word for it. Uh, you know, if you're president of the United States, just because he's a military expert doesn't mean you have to do exactly what they say. Just because he's a scientist doesn't mean you have to do exactly what he says. Having said that, how much how much is the both campaigns counting on the debate, the Trump team counting on the debate to really turn the tide in this election? Well, I think they see it as an opportunity. I think I'm not sure how the Biden people look at it. They say that, you know, he's obviously said that he's doing all three. Um, I, I would think that just knowing the styles that, uh, the Trump people think that there's a chance to change the dynamic in some of these States. And, um, you know, the first one out of the box is Chris Wallace. That's no walk in the park for either candidate. And I think that, um, you know, it'll be fascinating to see. I wouldn't be surprised if it's Super Bowl numbers as far as people tuning in. Right. Only, uh, and the fans will be at home just like at the Super Bowl, more than likely, uh, <laughs> Brett, thanks so much. What should we look forward to tonight at 6 Eastern? Tonight, uh, we've got Britt Hume added to the panel, and um, it'll be good. And then I've got an official from UAE previewing the big uh, peace deal with uh, Israel and UAE and Bahrain and and Israel. And, um, you know, in the big picture of things, that's, that's a big deal. That's happening tomorrow at the White House. So for my career, it's been threatened because they renewed Brit Hume for another four years. Um, how is that going <laughs> over in the Washington, D.C. Bureau? We, we do a lot of the same stuff. We are lucky to have every time Brit Hume's on the air. Right. Are you willing to say you're still a better golfer? Yes, I am. But I give <laughs> strokes, so, you know, that's what handicaps are for. Right. Brett Baer, thanks so much. See ya. All right. Uh, listen, we come back. We'll take your calls and we'll finish up and find out if there is indeed more to know. Brian Kilmeade Show. Listen and pick up on some things you didn't know before. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, don't forget, if you're looking for a, the war to fight back on the war in history, you pick up any of my books at BrianKillMe.com. If you have an event coming up and you want to sign to it or assign to a student 
or a teacher, you're maybe a history teacher, uh, just go to BrianKilme.com and it'll go to my local bookstore and I personalize and I get send it out. The last one is Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, which is now on a paperback, which includes new brand new material, which I think you'll uh, really like. Uh, so got some calls up there, but let's find out if there's more to know first. More to know. So the President of the United States released his list of Supreme Court justice nominees. who was so effective last time, so Republicans knew, and rest assured, that he was going to put a conservative forward, one of which the names are. And it's amazing to think how far this relationship has come. Ted Cruz. Listen to Ted Cruz's reaction. The president has put your name on a list of potential Supreme Court justices that he would name. Do you want the job? You know, I don't. I, it, it is deeply honoring. It's humbling to, to be included in the list. I'm, I'm grateful that the president uh, has that confidence in me. Uh, but but it's, it's not the desire of my heart. I want to be in the political fight. I want to be fighting to nominate and confirm three, four, five principled constitutionalist justices. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I mean, he wants to be out there. He wants to be president still. He doesn't want to be Supreme Court justice. He's all about being in front of the camera, don't you think? That's a very good point. Because I was going to say, do you think he's being honest? But oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I do think. Mike Lee, on the other hand, does not need the publicity. True. He lays. Right. And he must be the most stressful person. The guy doesn't have a wrinkle on his face. He really is aging incredibly well. I mean, have you noticed this? You notice wrinkles on men's faces a lot. Next, Colin Kaepernick takes aim at the NFL propaganda. That's what he calls it. This whole effort the NFL put forward billions of dollars into these causes. I'm going to have the black national anthem. I apologize to Colin Kaepernick. He says uh, he launched his kneeling protest, we know, in 2016 by mistake. I think it's because he was benched. But he says Eric Reed would have a job as buddy. He was the second one to kneel. He's a 20-year-old safety. Why does he not have a team? I just don't understand why we are still talking about Kaepernick. I mean, when it was time to meet with the NFL, he didn't want to meet with them years ago. Like, what, just stop yeah. enough of him. I am surprised that when he told everybody Colin Kaepernick deserves the next chance, nobody gave him another chance. It doesn't seem like he really wanted it. I think he knows he's making a ton of money and nobody's tackling him. And if he comes out and does terrible, it'll back up all his critics. Uh, and here's how NFL's protested around the uh, around the national anthem. I want you to listen to F- uh, Frank Wright, Colts Jaguars. Cut forty one. I want to briefly address you know, our team statement during the national anthem and just say that we will continue to bring attention to systemic racism and the injustice that our black communities are enduring. And we will continue to demonstrate our convictions to support and uplift our black communities. This decision was made by players and coaches collectively. It was a well-thought-out process and a stance that supports Well, I'll tell you, you know, Frank Reich's a great guy, uh, famous uh, uh, backup quarterback to Jim Kelly. He had some great moments uh, in other teams. He's looked at as a great coach. But the Jaguars did go out and beat the Colts. And I will say this. No one's organized. There are half of them in the locker room during the so-called Black National Anthem. Some knelt. Some got a locked arm in arms. Others kicked off, let the ball go in the end zone. They didn't chase it. I'm telling you, we get it. You don't want to be in people's face all day. And I think the crowds would definitely have shown their displeasure towards making, mixing sports and society had they been able to go. I agree with you there. I've never, in all my years, I'm used to hate mail, I get it, but I've never had people write me to say, I am a fan and I'm mad at you for interviewing Chris Spielman, Troy Aikman, uh, uh, Dave Wanstatt all last week. I did a different sports person every day. They're all mad. Say, how can you give them your time? 
And I said, and they all started out, I'm a supporter, but I couldn't be madder at you. So there's something going on out there. I don't know if it plays into the election. I know the president's been very critical. But I would love to address racial issues in our country, just not that way. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.